Welcome to the Modern Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Modern Mobility Partners. This podcast is for transportation planners and enthusiasts who want to learn practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges. And now, here are your co-hosts, certified transportation planners, national experts, and thought leaders, Kelly Kemp and Kirsten Moat. Well, welcome to episode 18 of the Modern Mobility Podcast. I am Kelly Kemp. And I'm Kirsten Moat. And we are your fabulous co-hosts as always. In today's episode, we're going to go through seven steps to successfully fund your Safe Streets plan. And we are joined here today by our guest host, Amber Berg. Amber is a transportation planner, also with Modern Mobility Partners, with a special interest in safety and has been heavily involved in funding strategy and grant applications. And and if I could just say real quick, uh, when the bipartisan infrastructure law came out, she we had her do a deep dive and she's now our resident expert in BIL funding. <laughs> so welcome, Amber. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yes, great. Um, okay, so I'm going to start out with a little bit of background on, um, you know, why we're talking about this today. So the Safe Streets and Roads for All or Safe Streets is a new program that funds regional, local and tribal initiatives through grants to prevent roadway deaths and serious injuries. It is a discretionary program established through the bipartisan infrastructure law that I just mentioned. And the total funding associated with it is $5 billion, with the B, billion dollars, which will be dispersed over the next five years. So at the start of February this year in 2023, USDOT Secretary Buttigieg announced the fiscal year 2022 award of $800 million in grants as part of the initial round of the Safe Streets program funding. This has provided funding for projects in 510 communities across the United States. And the notice of funding opportunity, or what we call the NOFO, uh, for fiscal year 2023 is anticipated to actually be issued out here this spring, um, you know, momentarily. So, so Amber, what's the driving force behind this anyways? The Safe Streets program is... First, that it supports USDOT's National Roadway Safety Strategy and their goal of zero deaths and serious injuries on America's roadways. The main goal of the program is to provide some weight around the intentions of regional, local, and tribal communities in regards to safety. The program um, funds active action plans for safety and funds implementation grants to help them implement safety projects. If a community demonstrates a commitment to the goal of safety, whether that's Vision Zero or some other commitment, then a Safe Streets grant fund uh, funding is a viable route for them to um, make safety a reality in their community. In this first round of Safe Streets grants, USDOT has awarded 473 action plans and 37 implementation grants in total. Amber, do you know how many states received those awards? So when I took a look, they have an interactive map on the USDOT website, and it looks like all every single state except for Hawaii received at least one grant from 2022. In addition, Puerto Rico even received an award. Cool. Um, so, you know, we've talked about more recently um, the safe systems approach. What's the relationship of this to the safe systems approach? From my understanding, a community doesn't isn't required to use the safe systems approach to uh, get a safe streets grant or to implement a plan, but it is pretty closely related. A lot of the requirements of the NOFO uh, for the Safe Streets program is related to the safe systems approach. And overall, the goal of the program is uh, zero fatalities and life-threatening injuries for all users on the transportation network. Well, let's talk a little bit about potential implications for the general public. So the Safe Streets program uh, essentially will result in empowering the community members to take a more active role in their own safety. Um, as tribal or local or regional governments receive the financial 
financial support required to develop their comprehensive safety action plans or execute their safety projects. The hope is, is that the general public will begin to see their safety concerns, get prioritized and get addressed. So, you know, all of this new funding coming through is really intended to put, you know, money where the mouth is, implement safety improvements and really, you know, start to see those benefits for all road users. Uh, another potential implication in the long term is the gradual eradication of the systemic underinvestment that has contributed to the stark contrast in road user experience. And we talked about this um, last season when we talked about safety and equity. So that's that's what this is essentially getting to is is to implement more equity into um, the road network and the safety of that network, really thinking about, you know, how people in different communities um, perceive safety and what their safety factors are. So us as transportation planners, you know, we, um, we've seen an increase in attention on safety and Vision Zero. Not to say that safety hasn't been important in the past, it most certainly has, but there's certainly been a trend towards more v Vision Zero plans, um, safety systems, kind of that systemic approach. Uh, but there's also an element to our role in the Safe Streets program. You know, our job is really to help make the transportation uh, safe for all users to get where they need to go. Um, and we have an opportunity here to help communities uh, realize those plans and really put a strategy together to get projects implemented. Um, and now we have this dedicated funding source to help us do that, which is, which is great. All right. So I know we've got a lot to cover today in these seven steps. I'm very excited to get into them. So let's jump in and Amber, I'm going to hand it over to you. Okay, great. Thank you. And so um, to, re to kind of give an overview, we're going to talk about seven steps to successfully funding your Safe Streets plan. Um, and so hopefully this is helpful for that. And so it's not going to be about the action plan specifically, but about, you know, taking advantage of this money and getting started with it. So step one, uh, with any grant, you're going to want to determine your organization's eligibility for Safe Streets grants. For this program, MPOs, any political subdivisions of a state such as cities or counties, tribal governments, or a group of these are eligible for the Safe Streets program. States are unfortunately ineligible. Um, there's probably a lot of reasons behind that, but this program is really intended for local and regional agencies. Of course, states still can and should contribute to safe transportation systems. Um, and they might be doing that through funding that they already have available, such as the Highway Safety Improvement Program. And uh, we talked about, we briefly touched on the safe systems approach earlier, and I also call out the Highway Safety Improvement Program as a state program specifically because, um, at least in my eyes, I like to think of Safe Streets and HSIP as kind of like sister programs, um, one's formula and one's discretionary, but also uh, with the passing of the bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, states are now required to apply a safe systems approach through the Highway Safety Improvement Program, so that's kind of where these are related a little bit. So just to remind our audience, you know, if you need a refresher on funding programs out of the IIJA that Kelly mentioned and that Amber co-hosted with us last season, um, that is episode six from season two. So just go to our library and you'll be able to find it. That's my nice little shameless plug. I'm sure I'll have a few more throughout this episode. Get ready. So yeah, and uh, while this episode isn't about the Safe Systems approach specifically, it is closely related to the aims of the Safe Streets for All program and is mentioned in the NOFO. So again, the very first step you want to take is to determine if you're eligible. I think we could have lots of uh, safety episodes and Amber will join us as our resident safety expert. Yeah, I did just take the Safe Systems approach course, so. Well, there you go. Listen, you've, you've, 
just volunteered yourself for season season four. <laughs> um, so the next step you're going to want to take for the uh, for funding your safe streets for all grant is determine the type of grant that you will be pursuing. So under the Safe Streets program, there's two types of like sub grants that are available. You've got action plan grants and you've got implementation grants. As the name suggests, an action plan grant supports the development of a comprehensive safety action plan. Um, it may also fund supplemental action plan activities such as uh, a specific corridor analysis that you're concerned about um, or maybe some tactical urbanism projects to kind of demonstrate some new ideas. Um, but these would all fall under the umbrella of an action plan grant. The second type of grant that you can get with Safe Streets funding is an implementation grant. And these are reserved for projects and strategies that have been identified in an action plan. And the purpose of these implementation grants is to fund roadway safety projects uh, that are tied to a specific roadway safety problem that you've identified. So the projects that will be funded with these grants could be any combination of infrastructure, behavioral, or operational projects. Implementation grants can also be used for planning and design and supplemental action plan activities related to an existing action plan. However, please note that a prerequisite for applying for an implementation grant is that you must have a, an action plan or similar plan that meets DOT's eligibility requirements. Yeah, and um, we mentioned it earlier, you know, a lot of this first round of grants was for action plans, the vast majority. There were a handful of uh, implementation grants, and um, I don't remember the details of all of them, but I do know here in Atlanta, the city of Atlanta was actually awarded a $30 million grant out of this program for implementation in downtown Atlanta. So it's actually one of the corridors that we're working on for the South downtown study. Um, and so we're, we're integrating that, that new information into that plan. So, so Amber, you had mentioned that a prerequisite for applying for the implementation grants is to have an existing safety action plan or similar plan that meets eligibility requirements. So what are the eligibility requirements? Because, you know, we do plans all the time and we're always incorporating like nine, 99% of the time, I feel like we're always incorporating safety into it and we're doing a crash analysis and identifying safety hotspots and potential safety improvements. So does that qualify or like what qualifies? Sometimes uh, they have very strict parameters and they say that for the most part, like comprehensive transportation plans are not going to cut it. Uh, highway plans are not going to cut it. Uh, active transportation plans could be eligible. Vision Zero plans will absolutely be eligible. Transit plans, probably not. But it's not just the type of plan that you already have that um, may or may not be eligible, but um, it also needs to be it needs to have been published and adopted within the last five years. Um, so they want it to be a new plan so that it's current in reviewing what's going on in your community presently. Um, in addition, uh, your existing plan that you're trying to determine the eligibility of, it must include a thorough safety analysis that identifies major safety concerns in your community. And the recommendations of the plan must address those identified safety concerns. So in theory, could an agency, let's say an MPO is going to do, you know, they have to do their federally required metropolitan transportation plan, their MTP. Could they, in theory, just make sure that they've got an, all of these safety elements required of a safety action plan included in the scope and budget and schedule and call that their joint MTP and safety action plan and kill two birds with one stone and then make themselves eligible for safety funding potentially? Because if they got to go out and do all of the same stuff anyway, right? Yeah. 
Not according to the NOFO. I mean, if they are being very thorough in regards to safety in their MTP, maybe they need to have a conversation with FHWA, or maybe it's just nice that they're already looking that detailed. Um, but the NOFO states, not broad and general plans are ineligible. No, but I mean, like if they, let's say a year from now, they're embarking on their next plan. Right. If they rebranded it as the joint MTP and safety action plan and they cover MTP scoping elements and the safety action plan elements. And then they I mean, if they've got a, am just thinking they could kill two birds with one stone. It might cost them a little bit more, but not as if they had to do those two items separately. You know. That's a good question. I'm just, yeah. Um, I'm, not, I'm just, I'm just pontificating here and throwing some ideas out there that that could be something that MPOs might want to consider. Yeah, I, th- it, I think it, it could work. I think what you would have to be careful about is your outreach because I know mm-hmm. there's like some efficiencies, right? Mm-hmm. You're already going out to the public, but. I think with these action plans, not only is there a public component, you also have to set up a task force. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not sure that your task force would be the same same thing as your stakeholder group for your MTP because you'll have different people wanting involved. Mm -hmm. And then in your public meeting, you know, you for the MTP, you'd be covering a broad range of topics. But for this, it would be specific to safety. So can you do all of that and meet the eligibility? Like, I think there's a way to do it. I just think we would have to think through very strategically to make sure that we are um, pinpointing safety issues as part of that public outreach. And it's not getting lumped into the broader conversation. Right. And and to the point about, like, um, you know, economies of scale and efficiencies as it relates to, say, your stakeholders... Yes, the safety task force is traditionally going to be, made, in some cases, separate stakeholders, in some cases overlapping. But there could be an argument that every single one of those should be involved in the long-range planning process as well, right? So, like, I think you could, to your point, you'd have to be very strategic and think through it. But I do think it's something that MPOs might want to think about as they embark on, on their next MTP update cycle. Um, that, you know, they might be able to, you know, increase their budget by 20, 30% and be able to, I'm just making that number up. Don't quote me on that, but, you know, and be able to capture some economies of scale, but also just the, the collaboration and getting all the right people at the table for both conversations and having it really more integrated could actually be a real benefit. Yeah. And, um, You know, another thing that I'll note about MPOs doing these, um, you know, Atlanta Regional Commission actually just released Mm -hmm. theirs and it just got adopted. Which we were involved in. Yes, we were (laughs) on the funding side. So this is very, very um, related to the work that we did for that plan. Mm -hmm. But one of the questions that came up is if the MPO is doing this plan, are the local governments that fall within that MPO now eligible for implementation plans? Uh, the answer was no, Ooh. because the regional plan did not get specific enough mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the analysis. You know, there were more regional trends. Right. Um, and so that's why you now see all of these local plans uh, like here in Metro Atlanta and, and across the across the U.S. That's why you see them all at the at the local scale. But MPOs are are still, you know, doing these plans as as they should. To look at those trends but um for a local government at least here in atlanta they they needed to come up with their own plan that's a good point because with the larger mpos it's hard to get that granular so maybe it's only the smaller mpos that might be able to consider that joint strategy yeah okay amber we'll let you get back to <laughs> i told okay. you at the beginning that i was just i know i told we you sure i was did. just gonna chime in wherever and there you go <laughs> Nope. <laughs> well, I think also, I think my assumption is that the reason that the NOFO says, you know, you can't use broader general plans is because they want um, the implementation 
projects funded with Safe Streets funds Mm -hmm. uh, to be really robust and really informed by local context and data and outreach. So I I figure that's probably what they're trying to avoid is just someone just, you know, calling something safety if... Right. uh, Yeah. Yeah, and and you've probably got to include um, a much more well-defined scope for the projects with proven safety countermeasures and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So... If uh, if we've caused any confusion or if you want a, more detail, just look at the self-certification eligibility worksheet in the NOFO. Uh, it's table two of section C3IB. We'll have that in the so. show notes. <laughs> so you don't have to write and, that down. Yeah, I also um, suggest that we put uh, Atlanta Regional Commission's uh, regional safety strategy plan in there. Um there is a whole section on guidance for safety funding uh, includes a version of that worksheet that Amber just mentioned, as well as some other resources for um, funding that you can use for safety projects. And, uh, but yeah, in short, if your project doesn't come from an eligible action plan, then you need to either pursue other funds to fund that project or apply for a safe streets action plan grant instead. No sufficient action plan, no implementation grant. Okay. Um, step three, you're going to want to consider what makes a competitive safe streets application. Um, we could have, actually, do we have a competitive grant application podcast episode already? Mm-hmm. We do. That was in season two. Thank you, Amber. Yeah. So refer to that. Um, but what I'm going to start off with for step three, make a competitive application is, um, we're going to run through the selection criteria specific to the safe streets program. Um, in general with any grant application, you're going to want to do a good job of meaningfully engaging with the selection criteria that is laid out of the NOFO. Um, don't just try to fudge what's in your project um, to fit the NOFO. Um, FHWA is going to see through that. They'd rather you just be honest, as I've learned with other great applications. Um, Thank you, Kristen. And um, so, yeah, just make sure, like, if you're applying for these funds, make sure your funds are um, fitting the goals of that program. Yeah, they'd much rather, they don't always expect you to meet every single minor criteria they just want you to Mm -hmm. say you know if it doesn't just tell them so now to dive into the safe streets for all merit criteria specifically believe it or not they look at whether you incorporate safety when you're applying for a grant (laughs) surprise surprise yeah if you're not looking at safety maybe look for a different funding source so What's important here to know is the the plans and projects should be laser focused on safety um, and get really detailed and granular uh, as much as you can for a grant application. You'll want to instill confidence in FHWA that you are capable of attaining the specific measured safety targets that your community is setting within a specific time frame. So one way to do that is to demonstrate a firm grasp on the plan's approach and methodology, analysis, and administration of the project that you are trying to fund, um, or make it very clear how the action plan that you are intending to develop with action plan funds, um, make it very clear that how you're going to address safety with that plan. Yeah, in general, just make sure that you're you're getting detailed into safety. Don't just look at crash hotspots, for example. A lot of plans look at that already, but um, you know, maybe pull out some specific statistics that you have in your community and include that in your grant application to show them that you're really trying to get into the details of safety in your community. The next selection criterion um, is equity, engagement, and collaboration. And so, although this is a safety program, the goal is that uh, we approach equity, engagement, and collaboration uh, as something perpetual and integrated into safety work. Um, 
we don't want it to be something that's just lightly sprinkled on top, especially considering a lot of safety concerns in communities, especially in the U.S., um, there's, there tends to be inequities or disparities among income groups or racial groups. And so with the Safe Streets for All program, it's really important to show that you're not just trying to address safety broadly, but you're also trying to address um, where are crashes much more concentrated or who is bearing um, a disproportionate amount of crashes or injuries or fatalities, and that you're trying to eradicate those so that um, your community is safer for all residents. Equity is kind of a topic by itself, so um, just another plug, you can check out our equity and transportation safety episode from season two. Um, yeah, and I would just add that we did also outline some strategies to incorporate equity and justice 40 um, into your plans in the planning emphasis areas episode, which was our season three opener. Uh, episode 16, where we outline all the new federal planning emphasis areas and tie them back to all these other episodes in season three. So it's all related. Yeah. And spoiler alert, we have another season, uh, another episode coming up this season specific to incorporating Justice 40 into your plans. Um, so that'll be a really good one to listen to, too. And you'll be able to take all of these different episodes and make the most fabulous plan you ever have. The next merit criterion is effective practices and strategies. So the Safe Streets program is a wonderful opportunity to aggressively pursue um, a lot of new and innovative ways of um, thinking about safety and transportation in your community or utilize innovative technologies or solutions that cater to all travelers. So for, for instance, FHWA doesn't want you to just, you know, put in a roundabout because everyone's putting in a roundabout and everyone's like, roundabouts are so much safer safer than your typical intersection. They want you to, um, you, but they want you to utilize concepts like complete streets or multi-use pathways um, or other innovative and emerging practices um, that are backed up with data, but where you can um, appropriately appropriately tie how those solutions will be helpful for the specific safety concern of your community. Um, does, is that clear? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we talked about at the beginning of this season that we were going to be weaving planning emphasis areas into hopefully all of these episodes. Uh, but this conversation right here about, you know, good design and complete streets is right in line with what FHWA and FTA encourage in their planning emphasis area number three, which is called complete streets. Pretty straightforward, that one. So the next selection criterion is climate change and sustainability and economic competitiveness. The climate change and sustainability piece, I'm we've been seeing pop up and a lot of other nofos of other FHWA programs such as RAISE. I think economic competitiveness has always been a key part, um, or at least I assume so, but it seems like USDOT is also considering um, job creation um, or working with unions and um, working with minority-owned businesses and so on. Um, but so of like always consider economic competitiveness, but then with the safe streets program, um, look at the NOFO for the specifics on that, as well as climate change and sustainability. So while this is a safety program, DOT also wants to know that, um, you're trying to proactively reduce greenhouse gas emissions or stormwater pollution or air pollution, um, so that you have a more competitive application. Um, but also that if you're going to advance safety, it's not coming at the cost of environmental goals either. Yeah, and it really seems like the USDOT 
thought carefully about the planning emphasis areas that they released back in December of 21, you know, when they were writing the NOFO, because you see so many of these that line up pretty well with the different criteria in the NOFOs, like this one being planning emphasis area one, tackling the climate crisis. It just, it's like the, the PEAs, the planning emphasis areas are just all over these NOFOs and, and rightfully so. And to our audience or one listener, maybe two, Uh, You are welcome. Not only does this episode give you a detailed rundown of how to be competitive, uh, but that episode 16 that we keep referring back to really gives you some tips and tricks on how to incorporate these components in your application. So um, hopefully some good resources for everybody to use. So again, the selection criterion are safety, equity, climate change and sustainability, economic competitiveness, and uh, effective practices and strategies. Incorporate those, be very detailed and specific in your application. But you also want to demonstrate fiscal responsibility of your agency in your grant application so that FHWA can kind of trust you when they give you money, basically. Yeah, and and so this being step six of demonstrating fiscal responsibility, I think, you know, one thing also is that they like to see where the applicants got have skin in the game. You know, they want to make sure that um, they're, they're putting their money where their mouth is, too, and that there's some non-federal contributions as well. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll just add that, you know, historically, with discretionary grants, um, historically, like a long time ago, it was primarily like an 80-20 split, right? So they expected 20% of the funding to come from locals. It seems like more and more... You know, if if locals can demonstrate their willingness to um, contribute more to the project than the baseline 20 percent, they tend to be a little more competitive. So, yeah, you can write the best grant application, but it can still be thrown out if uh, you can't demonstrate your ability to carry out the scope of work or if your finances are questionable. Um, next, to have a competitive application, don't submit a generic application. Don't use the same language or stats that you might use in every other transportation grant application, especially if the merit criteria are different from NOFO to NOFO. You want to make sure that you're being specific to the Safe Streets program. And also, engage professional services when working on a grant application. It takes a lot of time to put one together. It's almost a full-time job in and of itself. So, um, yeah, reach out to some consultants (laughs) and uh, get some help from seasoned professionals in applying for your Safe Streets grant. Why, Amber? It's funny that you say that. What a great plug. (laughs) Modern Mobility Partners can help you with your grant application needs. (laughs) Can I also just say that speaking selfishly as a consultant where we do grant applications, um, if you are an agency that does a lot of grant applications, we actually recommend that you kind of get a consultant, whether it's us or somebody else, kind of on retainer for grant grant application writing because you don't always know exactly when those no foes are coming out and if you don't already have them under contract it can take some time so if you've already if you already have them under contract you can get them going um especially also you want to have a grant strategy where you know which projects you want to submit in the first place so just putting that in there and one thing i want to correct from what i said earlier when you were talking about um Oh, what were you talking about? You were talking about demonstrating fiscal responsibility. That was not step number six. Ignore what I said. That was part of step number three. We are just now getting to step number four. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, so now moving into step four, assuming you get the Safe Streets grant funding, you're going to want to develop your action plan. The details for developing your action plan are in the NOFO. I suspect that if you get awarded a grant, FHWA will also provide guidance, but the NOFO lays it out pretty quickly. So let's run through the different sections that is required for a Safe Streets for All action plan. 
first you're going to want to have robust leadership commitments and goal setting. So maybe your community has a vision zero commitment, or maybe you have uh, your mayor, someone on city council who is really committed to safety. You're going to want a public commitment from them. Or if for some reason you can't make that happen, provide a target date a significant percentage and reduction in roadway fatalities and serious injuries by a very specific date with the express aim of ultimately eliminating roadway fatalities and serious injuries. So basically this component is just showing that you are committing to safety and reducing fatalities and injuries. You're not just trying to fund a project under the guise of safety. The next part of your action plan is you're going to want to consider the planning structure. Specifically, maybe you have a steering committee for your action plan, an implementation group, some type of task force um, or similar body charged with the oversight of the action plan's development, implementation, and monitoring. So the overarching goal is to ensure that um, you have some uh, community experts who are informing key decisions of the Safe Streets action. Now, the next part, which is almost like the bulk of the plan, is you're going to want robust safety analysis as part of your Safe Streets action plan. Another piece that's a little like obvious, but we're going to give you the details anyway, especially because they're quite specific. So every action plan needs a robust safety analysis component where you look at the existing conditions and historical trends in regards to safety in your community and ensure that they are assessed um, to generate a baseline level of crashes involving fatalities and serious injuries across the study area. So like I mentioned earlier, safety analyses typically include like a hotspot of crashes in your community. Go beyond just looking at crash hotspots but also look at the severity, contributing factors, and crash types. So I'm going to pull out something that was discussed in my Safe safe Systems Approach course. The diff- one key difference between the Safe Systems Approach and what they consider the traditional approach to safety is that you don't just want to eliminate any and all crashes. I mean, you do, but like, don't have that as your main goal and instead focus really hard on reducing fatalities and serious injuries. And to me, for the longest time, I was like, what's the difference? Don't you want to reduce all crashes? But something that was called out was that um, if you get a fender bender when you're on an on-ramp to an interchange, that sucks. It's not great. We don't want that to happen. But when you compare that to traffic fatalities, that's, you know, that's so much more trauma. That's a loss of life. And so... Um, we want to reduce fender benders, but you really want to focus in on where are fatalities and serious injuries happening? What are the contributing factors? How can we eliminate that so we're not losing life on our streets? Right. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, when you're conducting this analysis, what kind of questions should planners be asking and seeking answers for? So some examples might be, where are crashes occurring? Um, Are they occurring at the same locations over and over? What are the characteristics of those locations? Do they have wide turning angles? Are there slip lanes? Are there blind spots that you might not see with aerial imagery? Like, is there shrubbery in the way or signage in the way? Are crashes typically occurring at night in that location? And what is the lighting situation like for both drivers and pedestrians? You might also want to consider what modes are represented in your jurisdiction's crash data. Um, Even when you look at the specific crash locations, like is there a mode overrepresented at a certain location? So basically go above and beyond simply looking at crash hotspots to identify what's causing crashes in the first place so that we can act proactively. So this is a great example of where you take it to a whole nother level compared to, say, a regional MPO, Metropolitan Transportation Plan, where at that level, at that broader level, you may be looking at crash hotspots and looking at some of the causes and looking at, you know, high injury and and um, fatalities, but you're not, you may not always go out and look at lighting and, you know, turning angles and all that stuff, right? So, yeah. 
Perfect. That So that's an example of drilling down further and getting more granular. Mm-hmm. The next piece that you're going to want to include in your action plan is engagement and collaboration. And again, FHWA wants you to go above and beyond. Don't just hold an open house. Don't just do a broad community survey. But they want you to um, have a lot of concerted outreach between the general public, the private sector, and community groups. um, And then incorporate their feedback meaningfully into the action plan. Next, you're going to want to have uh, equity considerations in your safety action plan. Again, we mentioned earlier how there's a lot of disparities in where crashes occur and the severity of crashes in a lot of U.S. communities. And so you're going to want to consider equity and look at demographics and different types of communities when you look at your um, crashes and ensure that you're addressing equity with Um, your analyses as well as your recommendations so that you can make uh, your community safer for all community members. Yeah, and um, I mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. You know, going above and beyond in these equity considerations is really important. Um, We'll have another episode coming up specific to Justice 40, uh, but it really hits on that that equity. to just go above and beyond identifying where those equity areas are or disadvantaged communities or underserved communities, whatever terminology you want to use. Um, but really puts a focus on how are you going to mitigate that um, and how is it going to provide benefit for those users? And then the next piece that you're going to want to include in your action plans development is a consideration of policy and process changes. Um, So this is where you will take time to assess your current local policies and standards and consider how those contribute to your existing transportation network and how you might improve your transportation network in terms of safety. So for example, um, you might use your Safe Streets Action Plan as an opportunity to push for a complete streets policy where all new roadways built or all repavings um, you know, must make complete streets improvements. That's just one example of how you might look at how your policies can help implement safety improvements in the broader transportation network. Yeah, and I can um, cite another example. So the city of Atlanta, as a part of their Vision Zero, um, have implemented a policy that all non-state roads within the city limits are going to have a speed limit of no more than 25 miles an hour. Yeah, and 25. So they can't they can't do that on state facilities. They mm-hmm. don't govern those. Right. But right. any other local locally owned road by the city of Atlanta will be a maximum of 25 miles per hour. Next in your action plan, once you've completed the safety analysis, the security analysis, you know, review your outreach and your policies, then you can move on to strategy and project selections. And you're going to want to ensure that the projects that are being recommended are addressing the crash and safety concerns that you've identified through all of this analysis and outreach. And then you're going to want to prioritize those um, so that those projects that are going to be the most impactful are what are your what you're going to be implementing first. So, and I just want to add that, you know, similar to the equity piece, We'll also have Peyton Moran with Modern Mobility Partners join us this season to provide guidance on how to set up and conduct a project evaluation and prioritization framework that our audience can use during this step. And I feel like we keep on, and I know we keep on mentioning all these other different episodes, but that just goes to show how safety and equity are like woven throughout everything we do as transportation planners. It touches on everything and it, or it should, right? Mm -hmm. So, yes. Next, you're going to want to ensure that your action plan is uh, developed with progress and transparency and is implemented with progress and transparency. So you're going to want to have some type of goal tracking functionality, so demonstrating your progress and implementing the action plan in a way that is measurable and time-bound. 
you're going to want to do this to demonstrate to FHWA that um, you're committed to safety, but then also to provide transparency to your community that you take safety seriously, you take their input seriously, and you're trying to make the network better for them. Yeah, and I, th- I think a lot of agencies are trying to be more innovative with their performance monitoring and their reporting using um, dashboards. I know we do quite a bit of performance monitoring for clients, and uh, we're working on some pretty cool dashboards. Of course, it does take a lot of technical expertise on the on the back end to really kind of get everything into one place where it's automated and it continually updates as you get more data. Um, but once you can get to that place and you've got this dashboard that you can display to the public, it's a it's a really great tool. Yeah, and I would just add that, you know, I think it's important that as planners and, and agencies and, um, you know, facility owners and stuff that we get credit for all the types of projects that do have a safety benefit by capturing that in these reporting and dashboards for your plans and studies, even though those plans and studies may be outside of the safety action plans. If there are pro- if there's projects that have safety benefits, you want to make sure you capture and message that. So. So step five is to um, identify potential prioritization data uh, for informing your project prioritization. So as we've discussed, a key component is not just to recommend projects that will address your safety concerns, but that you have a robust prioritization scheme that will help you achieve your most critical safety concerns. I'm going to cover a few options, which, as you'll see, are closely aligned with the Safe Streets for All's uh, merit criteria, as well as DOT's um, planning emphasis areas. I'm going to cover um, some example metrics that you might want to consider for prioritizing your projects. So I'll start off with some safety metrics. Uh, For example, you might want to measure the crash rate of a project location and then maybe compare that to your jurisdiction's overall crash rate to kind of determine, okay, is this unusually high? Um, And similarly, you can make that same measurement for fatality rates compared to crash rates as a whole to see are fatalities occurring here much more often compared to where other crashes are occurring. You can also use crash modification factors for your proposed project type. This is something I've only learned about recently, but CMFs, crash modification factor CMFs, are um, an estimate of the number of crashes in a location after implementing a specific countermeasure. It doesn't encompass every single project type out there, but it can give you a pretty good idea based on a lot of data and research whether a proposed project can be expected to reduce crashes compared to what you already have existing on the network. And I'll just mention that there is an entire clearinghouse of crash modification factors on FHWA's website. We'll put that in the show notes. It's a really good resource. Um, to kind of indicate, you know, which which project types may have more of a reduction. And you'll actually see that some of your project improvements decrease safety and actually increase risk, which um, I've seen recently. So we were, this was a widening project from four to six lanes. And because of that additional volume and capacity, sorry, the additional capacity, it actually increased the risk and had a negative modification factor. So, so a lot of good information on that, on that clearinghouse. And I think in there, in that clearinghouse, it also aligns with all the federal highway proven safety countermeasures that they list out too, which are all the different safety elements that you can include in project that help improve safety. You might also want to consider developing a high injury network if you don't already have one in your community. So a lot of municipalities are developing high injury networks. So where they identify which roadways have a disproportionate amount of crashes where a lot of crashes are happening. And they use these to quickly and systematically identify where safety improvements are needed most. So if you have developed a high injury network, then you can also use this to help prioritize your projects. Some example cities that have these is uh, Portland, Seattle, 
Atlanta has one. I'm sure a lot of the major cities have them. A lot of times they exist as GIS files that you can quickly use to spatially analyze your projects. I'm going to cover some equity metrics that you could also consider for your prioritization. So for example, you might want to look at whether your project is located in a historically disadvantaged community or area of persistent poverty. DOT has released a tool that identifies these communities already based on a set level of criteria. This has been used for determining eligibility for other programs such as RAISE. I believe it's also used for Justice 40. And so this may not be, or at least I encourage that you go above and beyond using this tool, but it's a pretty good place to start out at. And it can also help you just have a little bit more information if you want to apply for additional federal funds beyond Safe Streets. And then if you do drill a little bit further down into your equity analyses, you might also want to prioritize projects based on the crash rates for people of color at the project location. We've hinted at the disparities earlier in this podcast, but typically black and indigenous pedestrians are overrepresented in crashes and fatalities. So prioritizing projects in communities of color or where there are disparate crashes actively furthers equity specifically for these population groups. You may also want to consider the degree of universal design principles utilized by a proposed project. Um, If you're unfamiliar with universal design, it's kind of the concept of going above and beyond ADA to ensure that whatever facility you're constructing is accessible for everyone, no matter their physical abilities. Because if a facility is accessible by someone who is blind or someone who is wheelchair bound, then it's also going to be accessible for someone who doesn't have those limitations. Also prioritize projects in terms of climate change and sustainability. So you might also want to consider, does your proposed project incorporate green practices or stormwater management? What are the anticipated emissions reduced by your proposed project? And can you anticipate or estimate the mode shift to non-motorized modes or to transit by your project and then prioritize that project higher based on that? You may also want to prioritize projects based on um, their anticipated utilization. So consider the number of amenities or destinations served by a project. Safety projects will have a much greater impact if they connect to places that people often go to. So instead of, you know, making a safety improvement way on the outskirts of town, make it maybe downtown or in an area like right by a library or somewhere where a lot of people are going to and it will get much more utilization and have a greater impact. Proximity to transit stop is also really important to consider especially for trying to ensure that your safety projects are multimodal and also consider pedestrian and bicycle usage. This is a little bit of like a double-edged sword in terms of if a project location is already heavily trafficked by people outside of a car but the roadway is designed for them, you're going to want to give those locations greater consideration for safety improvements. So for example, a four-lane downtown street with high volumes of both cars and pedestrians, but maybe your intersection only has like a really well-worn crosswalk that you can barely see and nothing else that really makes it safe. It's probably a good idea to maybe install curb extensions, make sure your pedestrian signals are visible and working properly, maybe add a pedestrian island or leading pedestrian interval intervals to make it safer for everyone there. However, sometimes there are roadways that are not currently utilized by bicyclists and pedestrians because they are so unsafe. Maybe there's no sidewalk present, or maybe it's just like a four-lane roadway that isn't well connected. So also consider if your project location serves those high-demand locations like libraries or grocery stores, but also consider if a project location would improve the safety of road users and close a gap in the existing network so that you you can create a safe connection where there isn't one already. You're also going to want to prioritize projects based on type. So one aspect of this might be the project cost. DOT prioritizes projects that are low cost and high impact. In my opinion, this maybe won't be the most important prioritization factor for a Safe Streets for All action plan because the primary goal is safety. But to achieve safe streets, you don't always have to wholly reconstruct the roadway. Sometimes simpler projects can achieve the same level of safety outcomes, such as adjustments in signal timing or using tactical urbanism. And using these more low cost solutions can help stretch your dollar further to implement more projects. 
So I guess, for example, like a high cost project might still be critical in advancing safety, depending on where it's located and what is currently on that roadway and what you're proposing, especially if you might be doing something such as separating users in time and space. So maybe that's left turn signal phasing, which a lot of us are probably familiar with, but when you have just a green arrow on a left turn signal, then you as a driver don't have to kind of estimate like how fast is that person that's coming towards me in the other lane going and can I turn left at enough time without crashing? When you have left turn signal phasing, you don't have to make that risk judgment and you can turn safely. Similarly, having, you know, leading pedestrian intervals or maybe separate and protected bike lanes can separate other road users so that there's not that risk judgment there. Drivers aren't having to estimate like, okay, can I make this turn before the pedestrian crosses? Pedestrians uh, hopefully won't be running in front of you to conveniently get to where they're going. So if we can separate users in time and space, you can reduce that risk judgment. Yeah, I think that's an important point that you made earlier about, you know, low cost, high impact, or or historically, that's what agencies typically prioritize. Now, safety projects, in many cases, can be lower cost. And so they might have a high benefit cost ratio, um, you know, anything over 1.0, where your, your benefits outweigh your cost is ideal. But yeah, I think you might want to look at it through a different lens, depending upon the cost of the safety improvements for the reasons you noted. So that, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think Kirsten, um, when, back to what we were talking about with tactical urbanism, you've got a good example of that, too, that you were involved in. Yeah, we um, we were a part of the demonstration project for the for Peachtree Street in downtown Atlanta, um, where they were basically testing um, a shared street concept and they took away two lanes one in each travel direction to expand the pedestrian access and um, there's there's a lot of debate about how successful it was Mm -hmm. with regard to traffic Um, but I think you know from an all road users standpoint it was beneficial because now pedestrians had less traffic to cross they had two lanes instead of four. Um, and yes, it did slow down traffic. And the average speed went down uh, pretty significantly during that demonstration. Yes, there was more congestion. But again, I, I'm not trying to go into an argument, but it was a downtown area. <laughs> they sh- It should be congested with people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'll say, you know, I live in Decatur, Um here in Atlanta and (laughs) they installed these what the residents um, call these hideous planters they're not that bad but they're not the prettiest things in the world they're like all different colors I don't know what they were doing but anyway um, they've got these planters that they put um, pretty much in the you know taking up a lane on one side to provide a buffer for the pedestrians and vehicles um, because we do have a nice um paved multi-use trail that follows the corridor but there still wasn't a whole lot of separation and so they put in these um these uh planners and i think you know although they may not be the most attractive thing they've they've done their trick you know they provided a large buffer uh the traffic does to be honest with you doesn't seem to be any worse and to my knowledge um you know you don't hear much about accidents as much there anymore and now it's just an issue of you know the quality of the road pavement but that's a whole nother story so and by using planters that's a lot cheaper than you know wholly mm-hmm. reconstructing that roadway yeah yeah and it's a reversible right exactly so, yeah yeah we could have a whole other episode on tactical urbanism i know right i'm gonna move on and the last part of uh maybe a prioritization criteria that you might want to consider for um prioritizing your projects of your safe your safe streets action plan is consider the number of safe system approach elements. FHWA wants um, these plans to encompass at least two of the five safety elements in the National Roadway Safety Strategy. This is on FHWA's website and we'll link it in the show notes. But um, this National Roadway Safety Strategy covers the safe streets for all concept. And sorry, I'm pulling it up. Well, 
here we go. And there's five different elements and six like considerations around it, but the Safe Streets for All action plan should consider at least two of the following. Safe road users, safe vehicles, safe speeds, safe roads, and post-crash care. Hopefully that means something to you. If it does not, maybe we need another podcast episode on it. Check out the <laughs> National Roadway Safety Strategy. But basically, um, intentionally really consider the safe, safe systems approach and cite those specific approaches. And I think we can make sure in our show notes that we have links to the National Roadway Safety Strategy as well as an overview of the safe systems approach. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to step six of successfully funding your Safe Streets for All plan, <laughs> and that is to utilize existing available resources. DOT has provided a very lengthy website with resources for your safety action plans as well as your implementation projects. The website covers everything from the safe systems approach, equity, identifying stakeholders, safety goal setting, countermeasures, and more. ITE, the Institute of Transportation Engineers, also has a large swath of resources, including case studies on implementing the safe systems approach in the U.S., speed management, and more. There's other national resources, um, and some that I like are the Vision Zero Network. They're a nonprofit, and also Portland State University's Transportation Research and Education Center. They have a lot of great resources on safety as well as um, a whole lot of other transportation issues. I also want to call out Smart Growth America's Dangerous by Design. They've been conducting this report for, I believe, at least three rows in a year now, and they release it every year, and they analyze uh, crash trends across the country and rank states and cities by um, how bad their crashes are. And it's pretty glaring, but it's also um, a good crash course on understanding trends across the country, maybe how your community compares to other places in the country. Um, And it can also generate ideas for some data analysis you might use in your own community, especially if you're new to um, safety work. And again, we'll have all of those sources listed in our uh, show notes. So no need to stop driving and pull over the side of the road and write them all down. (laughs) Please, please be safe. I'm sure you're doing that. (laughs) Yeah. Please pay attention to the road. We have a safety episode. We do not need any crashes listening to this podcast. Yes. (laughs) The last step that I'm going to cover today is to learn from others as you develop your plans. Um, AKA safety action plans and best practice. Okay. Ignore that. Okay. The last step (laughs) I'm going to cover today is learn from others as you develop your action plans. While the Safe Streets program is new, its principles are not. For at least a decade, U.S. cities have been adopting Vision Zero and developing plans to support those commitments. Um, Leaders in this movement include the usual suspects, Seattle and Portland, and they have really great and robust Vision Zero plans. But there's a lot of other communities all over the U.S. um, adopting Vision Zero, making safety plans, Atlanta's working on its Vision Zero plan right now. We've talked about the Atlanta Regional Commission safety strategy. There's a lot of resources that you can refer to, um, even if it's outside of your metropolitan area, to um, kind of guide you or inspire you in developing your safety action plans. While some of these plans are just brief documents, um, you know, committing to zero roadway deaths, a lot of others have much more robust analyses, trans transparency, data analysis, they might be updated more often. They might have really good um, examples of engagement they did in their community and how that informed their plan. Um, So I really encourage you to look at what other communities are doing in terms of safety and taking some examples from them. Okay. Phew. I think that was our longest Maybe not the longest episode ever, but close to it. But yeah. a good one. Like, like there's so much involved. There, like, re- there so really is. And Amber, you yeah. did a fantastic job walking through yes. all of these elements from applying for these grants to actually completing the plans, all the different components that you need in it. So there's a lot of information in this episode, but it's really useful stuff for, for planners or communities that are getting into 
you know, safety plans, um, a lot of really great resources. The show notes are going to have a lot of good resources for you as well. So um, thank you, Amber, for joining yes, us. Thank you. And providing you. providing all that great information. Yeah, Can I tell y'all? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was oh, just going to say, saying, if, 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 anybody, <laughs> if, if anybody needs more information on grant applications, uh, Amber, you, you are the person. Yes, You're the person yes. to contact. So. so can I tell y'all what my biggest observation is, though, is that, um, you know, for those of you that don't know, we record out of our closets because we're just cool like that. But also it provides good acoustics. And my biggest observation looking at Kirsten's screen is that she has all but like one shirt in her closet and everything else is her husband's. Uh. <laughs> um, that's true. That's it's all Kyle's. Let's see from. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know. Yes. He has the majority of the closet. I've got a couple racks. You just can't see them. But yes, he's got a great wardrobe. Also, he also does all of my wardrobe shopping for me. Um, he picks out all of my clothes and my shoes, and if it weren't for him, I'd be in sweatpants and a hooded sweatshirt probably every day. So, so is he is like is he like your Kanye? Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> Not quite, but <laughs> he'll never listen. He's never gonna listen to this. It's okay. I'm gonna start calling him Kanye. <laughs> He's okay. gonna be like, what? Huh? Huh? <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we will wrap it up. Um, thank you for tuning in. We are, as a reminder, a nationally, um, or as a reminder, if you're a nationally certified planner through the American Institute of Certified Planners, this episode is eligible for AICP continuing maintenance credits. You can find all of our podcasts um, are eligible for AICPCM credits, and they're on the American Planning Association website at www.planning.org. All you have to do is look up Modern Mobility Partners as the AICPCM provider, and you'll see all of our episodes there. Uh, if you want to learn more about how Modern Mobility Partners can help you, you can find us at modernmobilitypartners.com. And as always, don't forget to subscribe and even better review our podcast. That is actually the best way to thank us for this free and fabulous content is to share our podcast and give us only five star reviews. Um, <laughs> you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to your podcast. And with that, we are over and out. All right. Bye. 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 Thank you for tuning in to Modern Mobility. If you work for an organization that has implemented innovative and practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges and are interested in being on our podcast, email us at podcast at modernmobilitypartners.com. Want to learn more about our consulting services? Check us out at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.